Hi listeners, it's Lucy. Please don't scroll ahead. This is a very quick message, I promise, to ask a very easy favour. At the end of each episode, as the credits roll, you'll hear a request from us to rate and review the show. Now, for those of you that are awesome podcast listeners rather than podcast makers, you might actually have no idea what a huge difference those things make. A significant factor in the visibility of a podcast on almost all listening platforms is down to the number and quality of ratings and subscriptions. So, if you are one of our dedicated listeners, hi, I know some of you as far away as Australia, so thanks. If you're currently not driving your car or changing a baby's nappy, can you please just look down at your phone right now as I'm talking and hit subscribe and five-star rating? Both of them are on the homepage of the show and they are both only a one-click job. But oh my God, what a lot of joy and gratitude I would feel at those one clicks. It makes such a difference to the show's potential to keep going. Now, enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. You're about to hear a brief conversation with an incredible artist. Part autobiographical journey, part literary analysis, and part late-night chat in the theatre bar. This is Hear Me Out. And I'm your host, Lucy Eaton. Please welcome to the stage, Tim McInerney. Absolutely. Did you have to do lots of voiceovers last year then and stuff from home? There were uh, there were voiceovers. There were kind of, I mean, there was, I mean, it was amazing how the technology from the beginning of lockdown changed within like two months. I mean, yeah. it was just phenomenal. And quite frankly, I could barely keep up with it. But I had um, I had a lot of people on my side at the time. One of my best friends is a is a sound recorder, so oh, he perfect. took me through all the stuff. But it was such a long time ago that I've completely forgotten everything I learned. Yeah, yeah, of course. We had you know audio books and all sorts of stuff to to and actually plays. We were doing plays. You know, you'd have thirty people or whatever on on a Zoom call, and then but God. you're all individually recording yeah and it's going through to a central sound engineer who's then having to mix it all together I mean it's kind of amazing I mean those engineers I have so much respect I did a tv show over lockdown that was all filmed remotely and the guy who edited that I just have the utmost respect for how he took I mean we were not recording sound like this like it was all on zoom so the way in which he manages there must have been time delays where you could hear someone say their lines through the computer, the way that he managed to make it look so seamless. He's a miracle worker. I don't know how he did it. So, Tim, what speech do you want to talk about? I mean, it's bizarre because it's a speech from a play that I've never done on stage professionally. Mm. I did it as a student when I was 19. I was was at Oxford and there was a, a group called the Oxford University Dramatic Society, OUDS. Does what it says on the tin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> every, uh, I think it was every term, there was a, they had a special relationship with Oxford Playhouse and you, oh. you had a student production on for a week in the Playhouse. And uh, one year it was me playing Richard II. Well, you would have been perfect at 19. I mean, he's a young king, isn't he? Yeah, he is a very young king who, hasn't, um, who doesn't behave well. Mm. <laughs> he's obsessed with his with himself with his own lifestyle he mm. he uh he wastes money he doesn't treat his friends or his relatives well he doesn't treat the the value of kingship i mean it's it, it is an extraordinary thing I and mean, it's very very difficult to 
to understand these days, but the whole thing of the divine right of kings was absolutely taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. That if you were king in the 15th century, 14th century, you were appointed by God. Uh, and it's a kind of remarkable thing because people, even if they don't, and it's mentioned time and time again throughout the play, even if people don't agree with you or indeed hate you, they will not go against you because you are the anointed of God. And it kind of goes to his head a bit. Right. But I think what's amazing is he's still oddly likeable. Like, I've seen Richard II just twice, and I liked him by the end of both. I know. I agree. It's You just think, I mean, all the evidence piles up against him throughout mm. two-thirds of the play, and you still... He's very, very intelligent mm. and very witty. I mean, the extraordinary thing about the play is that it's uh, it's like an early Shakespearean tragedy, but it's also a history play. It was an inflammable text that he wrote because he could have got into a serious trouble with it. In what way? It, basically, he's, he's putting on stage the actual deposition of a king, and you just didn't, nobody would dare to do that. He was very lucky not to be sent to the Tower at mm. the very least. I mean, he could have been executed for treason. Elizabeth I came to, went to see it and stormed out. Oh, really? They, and she actually, as, as she left, she said, no, you're not, that I am Richard II. But I think that's one of the other interesting things. When you were saying about the um, divine right of kings going to Richard's head, for a time where they really took it very seriously, there's a lot of takedowns that haven't happened in the last hundred years so much in the monarchy. Yeah, sure. If you, if you need to, you can justify anything. I mean, they all cheated and murdered their way to the throne anyway, you know. He was, he was implicated in a plot to kill um, the Duke of Gloucester, which was partly on his way to the throne. You know, Bolingbroke, um, it was, used to be fashionable to, to, uh, to double them, to, to, for, for, for actors to alternate the roles. Oh, interesting. So just before you go into that, can you explain for anyone who doesn't know Richard II well who Bolingbroke is? Uh, Bolingbroke is Henry... <laughs> yeah, one of the Henrys. I've forgotten. Yeah, he's Henry one of the fourth? Henrys. He's one of the Henrys. I think he's Henry. Yeah, it's, a, it's the beginning of the of the Tudor dynasty, which of course is um, uh, Elizabeth I at the time of Shakespeare. So it's about, as far as the Elizabethans were concerned, it's about the beginnings of modernism. And if you're saying that's based on a false premise, it's an extremely tricky political thing to say. Yeah, this whole dynasty is based on the fact that we. Uh, we illegally deposed a king. Above and beyond that, it's 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 about his journey to some kind of enlightenment. That's exactly what makes him so likable as well. Like when I said that he's likable, what strikes me is that by the end of the play, in Richard II, even though you almost feel like all his bad behaviour is in spite of the good man that is underneath or something. And by the end, he's so, you said enlightenment, but like he really seems to get it. And I think he seems very fragile and very vulnerable and very aware, like acutely aware of his situation. And I guess that's partly the speech that you wanted to choose. Absolutely. What is this speech? Where is this speech in the play? This speech is right at the end of the play. He has been deposed. He's been arrested by Bolingbroke. He's been thrown into a dungeon in Pomfret Castle. And basically he has, the only thing he can do, um, as we say, because in essence he is a likable, intelligent person, is reflect on his life and realise the mistakes he's made. 
And so as, as the audience, you're party to this. I mean, he's, and he's working it out about what he's done. And he becomes, I mean, just during the course of the speech, becomes a better person, mm. you know. And so, I mean, it's like everything with Shakespeare. It's, it's, it's not reflective. It's active. It's happening as you listen. Yeah. And I think he also knows he's going to die. He has learned something. He's gone as far as he can go. His life is not... Because he liked being a king. <laughs> I mean, you know. I mean, he's been punished by being deposed, but you don't, you don't get deposed from being a king and put in a prison at that time expecting to be released at some point. Yeah. You know, so that's not going to happen. He's going to die. So did you fall in love with this speech back when you, you said you did it as a student? I think there was one thing that, that even though you're, you're playing him at the age he is, I mean, obviously, you're, you know, dealing with the mind of Shakespeare, you're, I didn't really, I suspect, and I can't really remember, I suspect I didn't really understand <laughs> what he's going through. You know, you need to be older in order to do that. Mm, really. mm, mm. So that's why I think it's always it's always kind of um, obsessed me. I mean, when you when you're doing Hamlet, you do it at approximately the age of the character, and you have had that kind of experience. Which is why Hamlet is about you; it's not about a character. And I think simply because I never got, I also never got to do it um, professionally on stage. You, it kind of it's always felt like unfinished business, really. Mm. It's interesting you said that it, um, you know, you didn't fully get it. And I know that you were more ref referring to age and maybe experience there. But I also think I am someone who, fortunately, I feel very comfortable with Shakespearean language. I love reading it. I love studying it. I've performed it quite a lot. But when I came to this speech, just to sort of prepare for this chat... I found it, it's like, it's thorny. Like, it's it's really hard. I won't be ashamed to say I yeah. had to whap out No Fear Shakespeare on a couple of bits <laughs> because I was genuinely like, I can't wrap my head around what he's saying here. So I also can imagine that it's a speech that grows on you because, you know, to read it quickly at first or even to hear it, to see it performed, I'm sure a lot of it washes over someone. It is a thorny intellectual argument that he's having with himself. Mm. So he's having to work it out as he goes. I mean, there are beautiful passages in it, but it is also difficult. There was one bit that I loved for just the way Shakespeare can do this. It's the line, Whate'er I be, nor I nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased, blah, 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 blah. And I sort of had to read it like three or four times to yeah. go, how are these words, what sense... Can I make these words make in what order? And then when you get it, when it clicks, and that's what I, great, I guess a great performance would do, it's that age-old thing of if the actor really knows what they're saying, it's easier for the audience to get the sense of it. Um, but to read it on the page was sort of this... That's the most important line, really. Really? Oh, good. I'm glad I picked on that one then. Go on. Why is this the most important line? Because of the... the, the I mean, you read it once and, and, and it seems clear and then you read it again it becomes less clear and less clear uh, and then the apparent simplicity of it belies the um the sort of philosophical complexity of it yes yes <laughs> um how do you go about reading an older text and making sure you understand everything are you a no fear shakespeare man well it's kind of 
easier for me, I guess, because I studied it at university. So, mm-hmm. so the language never had any fear for me. But I mean, I never. Ha- I mean, if you don't know a word or don't understand something, then look it up or you know absolutely. read the notes at the bottom of the Arden. <laughs> I mean, obviously, when when words change their meaning, that becomes more more mm. diff- over five hundred years. That becomes more more complex. But I always remember being taught at the RSC being taught by the the voice coach Cicely Berry, who was kind of one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met in my life. She was a remarkable human being. And I was lucky enough to be directed by her as Hamlet. But she always said that people worry about the meaning of individual words and lines when actually the, the, the meaning, a lot of the meaning, a large proportion of the meaning is in the the choice of words, where they are in the line, and the rhythm mm. of the speech. That actually, even as an audience member, even if you don't know what the in, what individual words mean, you know what he's saying. You understand. Yeah, yeah. You do understand because there's something. There's also something to do with um, iambic pentameter. That 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 it is apparently the rhythm with which English is spoken naturally. I mean, that's where it came from. It's also a natural breathing thing. It's not It's not an intellectual exercise. These things don't happen by accident. Oh, I love that. I've never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and there's an awful lot of it in, the, in this play. I mean, it's very, uh, there's hardly any prose at all, I don't think. Mm. Are you then a, are you a non-believer in natural recital of Shakespeare, if you know what I mean? I am a non-believer in natural recital of Shakespeare. <laughs> um, I, I, simply because I think it makes it, I think it makes it more difficult to understand. Mm. Actually, because I mean, like I say, that the the rhythm of it, the natural rhythm of it, the rhythm in which it's written, helps towards comprehension. If you try and say it as though it was written yesterday, it's just not going. In my opinion, it doesn't work. Mm. I think I agree with you. But it also loses, it loses its beauty. Yeah, like it is a poem. It, the whole thing is yeah. poetry. I, I totally agree with you. I think there's room for, you know, I love it when maybe the odd line is said in a very modern way if it's to achieve a certain, you know, a comic effect or a... Oh, sure, you know, of course. It was another thing that Cicely Berry said was that, mm. I mean, she said, you know, of course you there are rules, but of course you can break the rules. Yes. But you have to earn breaking the rules you know you have to know exactly what you mean and how it should be done before you decide to cut that line in half and leave a pause or whatever there has to be a reason yeah have you got a favorite Richard that you've seen it must be quite hard if it's a part that if it's the part that got away for you it's not very often done I mean Mm. it's very rarely done I'm not sure if I've seen it that's terrible, isn't it? I'm not sure if I've seen it on stage, actually. But I also think that makes sense because, you know, I have I have an almost identical experience to you, actually, Tim, in terms of when I was at university. So I got cast as Julia and it was just one of the most roller coaster experiences of my life still to this day, you know, full of highs and lows. But ultimately, I was so proud of it. I have such a love for the character and the part. And as such, I don't think I've seen it since... <laughs> 
<laughs> because I think I feel so attached to her. I honestly find it quite difficult to watch. It's like watching someone step into your own skin. So I can understand how you might have, even on a subconscious level, not been rushing to see, you know. It's funny the things you get attached to. It's, I mean, it's inevitable, for example, with 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 Hamlet. Yeah, so when did you do that? How, how old were you when you did Hamlet? Um, I did that when I was... Uh, 30 at the it was a very low-key small-scale production at the national in the in the Cottesloe and then on tour mm. and we toured uh Germany as well I was doing it for sort of six months around the country from the back of a van kind of extraordinary but I mean I mean you once you've played Hammer it kind of doesn't matter the conditions under which you did it you're kind of part of a club you can only talk about it in a way that you can only talk about it with other people who've played it. It's <laughs> <laughs> just terrible kind of snobbery on one side, but, you know, it's just true. Because it's an experience that you go through. It's and so it, yeah. intensely personal. So you said, I mean, I know we're meant to be talking about Richard II, but you mentioned that earlier. So what do you mean by Hamlet is about you more than the part? It's what happens with playing Hamlet is that all the questions he asks himself, you ask yourself. And he's asking questions all the way through the play. I mean, it's not like in Richard II where he's questioning himself right at the end or <laughs> yeah. Lear when he's questioning himself right at the end. Yeah. It's all the way through. And so you inevitably start... It, it, that whole process seeps into you. Yeah. You become extremely paranoid. <laughs> I mean, I absolutely understand why, you know, Dan Day-Lewis was doing it and he left, he had to stop doing it because he, when the ghost appeared, he saw his father Yeah, very yeah. famously, you know. Yeah. I absolutely get that. I mean, I did it for six months and I dreamt about the play every single night. And it was kind of remarkable. It also, It's also very, um, playing Hamlet is a very humbling experience. It's... Uh, you're really dealing on a kind of meta level with Shakespeare's mind and you just can't cope. I mean, I remember distinctly this feeling you get where you're, it's like you're chasing Hamlet. You just catch hold of his shirt for a second and that's like the most thrilling thing in the world. And then you've lost him again. If you're really excited by a scene you've done in mm. the three and a half hours, that's a thrilling night. That's, are there any other parts that you on thinking about it now, you haven't gone to watch because you've done them before. Are there any other things you feel quite personal about? Yeah, there were... <laughs> when, I, when I left college, there were, th there were three things I wanted to do. Mm. I knew that I wanted to play Hamlet. Mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to play um, Jack in The Ruling Class by Peter Barnes. Oh. And I knew that I wanted to play Gethin Price in Comedians by Trevor Griffiths. Great. So you got to tick them all off. I did. I got to tick them all off by the time I was, you know, 32 or something. But I feel like then maybe the rule is the more theatre we do, the less theatre we can go and watch because everything we do, sometimes it's quite hard to watch that again. That's how you feel, but you have to kind of get over it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Well, I used to have that with certain theatres. I almost didn't want to revisit theatres I'd had a relationship with because it was quite hard to see another play in that theatre. And then you're like, but I don't want to not go to those theatres because they're amazing. No, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Hamlet was particularly tricky to go and to go and see productions of Hamlet. I mean, in fact, I didn't go and see it for many years, and then I went to see Andrew Scott's. I can't believe I missed that. I I missed that one. 
Okay, back to the speech. <laughs> Goodness. The weird thing about the speech is that, I mean, you know, I've given some reasons for being obsessed with it, but actually I don't really know mm. why. I guess it was because it was the first Shakespearean lead I ever played. But, I mean, I've, I know the whole thing. When we did Blackadder, because I was at university with Richard Curtis and Ryan Atkinson, Richard actually wrote it into a scene with Lord Percy. Great. Because I used to go on about it a lot. I, <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember what episode it was. It's not this speech, but it's one of the famous speeches. It's, for God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the yes. Death of Kings. And Percy's very unhappy at one point. He says, for God's sake, let us sit up on the carpet. And then Blackadder interrupts and says, I'm sorry, we don't have time for that. So he doesn't have time to do his speech. I had a whole slurry of fabulous questions that I wanted to put to you just as Tim, as opposed to Tim who chose in Richard II. And we're running out of time. But one of them was, how does it feel to be part of so many cult, like culty things? Because you were Blackadder, you've done some Game of Thrones, you were in Notting Hill. Like, is it a blessing or a curse? to be in those things? Well, I'm hugely proud of, uh, of Blackadder, and I do think it was a game-changing thing. I mean, we yeah. never thought it was going to be like that. I mean, mm. we had no idea, you know, obviously. But um, then it, it I mean, it, it does become difficult. I binned a lot of scripts that got sent to me for, you know, tall, dark, thin, stupid people. You know, it's like, really? <laughs> Well, I read that. It's interesting that, I, you know, I didn't know this before, but that you'd obviously decided you didn't want to do more Percy. No, I mean, I could easily have gone down that, that route if mm. I'd wanted to and probably would have made a lot more money. <laughs> but I never wanted to do that. I've always wanted to do things as varied as mm. possible, mm. Um, which, which is a problem in our industry, as you know. You know, people mm. like mm. to put you in a box and keep you there. But interestingly, I do think it's helpful at the beginning. It's one of those double-edged swords. I think I grew up thinking, even just as a child, you know, oh, I'm going to be so versatile. And when my mummy told me how special I was, you know, it was sort <laughs> of always going, you're so versatile, you know, you could do anything. And what I learned very quickly when I left Lambda was versatile is not helpful because actually what you say about the boxes you need to be the person where someone sees you and goes without a shadow of a doubt that is what I picture for that part because that person is so uniquely that part and then you almost need to break out of that and try to embrace versatility again later that's at least my understanding yeah. of it you know certain actors who were in a box and then mm. were allowed to do whatever they want but at the same time, there are other actors who, who I think were terrific actors who were never allowed to get out of that box, mm. even though they wanted to. So you never know. You are utterly not in control. That's the, that's the closing statement of this we industry. We are not in control of our lives, I'm afraid. <laughs> you, can, you can think you've got some control. You can be like, I'm planning this, but actually it's just going to fall the way it falls. Right, we should, I need to release you into the day. So um, would you please... Finish off the series for us by reading us your favourite complex, thorny Richard II speech in its entirety. Okay. I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it. Yet I'll hammer it out. 
My brain, I'll prove the female to my soul, my soul the father, and these two beget a generation of still-breeding thoughts. And these same thoughts people this little world in humors like the people of this world, for no thought is contented. The better sort, as thoughts of things divine, are intermixed with scruples and do set the word itself against the word, as thus, come little ones, and then again, it is as hard to come as for a camel to thread the postern of a small needle's eye. Thoughts tending to ambition, oh, they do plot unlikely wonders. How these vain, weak nails may tear a passage through the flinty ribs of this hard world, my ragged prison walls, and for they cannot die in their own pride. Thoughts tending to content flatter themselves that they are not the first of fortune's slaves, nor shall not be the last. Like silly beggars who, sitting in the stocks, refuse their shame that many have and others must sit there, and in this thought they find a kind of ease, bearing their own misfortunes on the back of such as have before endured the like. Thus play I in one person many people, and none contented. Sometimes am I a king. Then treason makes me wish myself a beggar, and straight I am. Then crushing penury persuades me I was better when a king. Then I'm a king again, and by and by think that I am unkinged. By Bolingbroke. And straight am nothing. But whate'er I be, nor I, nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. Oh, music do I hear. <laughs> oh, keep time. How sour sweet music is when time is broke and no proportion kept. So is it with the music of men's lives. And here have I the daintiness of ear to check time broke in a disordered string. But for the concord of my state and time had not an ear to hear my true time broke. I wasted time. And now doth time waste me. For now hath time made me his numbering clock. My thoughts are minutes, and with sighs they jar their watches on unto mine eyes, the outward watch whereto my finger, like a dial's point, is pointing still in cleansing them from tears. Now, sir, the sound that tells what hour it is are clamorous groans which strike upon my heart, which is the bell. So, sighs and tears and groans are minutes, times, and hours. But my time runs posting on in Bolingbroke's proud joy while I stand fooling here, his jack of the clock. 
This music mads me, let it sound no more. For though it hath hold madmen to their wits, in me it seems it will make wise men mad. Yet blessing on his heart that gives it me, for tis a sign of love, and love to Richard is a strange brooch in this all-hating world. I have to say, everything we talked about, it made bits that didn't make sense to me made sense to me. Thank you so much, Tim. Huge pleasure. Does it feel lovely saying it? It does, always. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Hear Me Out is a Lucy Eaton Productions podcast. Music composed by Tristan Kay and artwork by Rebecca Bright. Our heartfelt thanks to the estates and license holders that allow us to read our guests' speech choices. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can follow us on social media at Pod Hear Me Out and enjoy visual clips of the interviews on our YouTube channel. Finally, if you would like to support Hear Me Out, go ahead and click the Patreon link at the bottom of the episode bios. And watch this space for Series 3.